God, I thank you for an opportunity to gather, and I thank you for the gift of your word, that we can hear uh, what you have to say uh, in, in a plain way, in a way that we can understand. And, and we have copies of the Bible in, in our language, in, in very readable English. And, and I pray that, that you would uh, enliven your word by the power of your spirit, so that we would uh, know who you are and know what you've done for us, and that we would get a sense of, uh, of your grace and a sense of your power and a sense of your love uh, that would really uh, be more than just head knowledge for us, but would be something that would transform every aspect of our lives. So we pray that you would send your spirit to, to help us to receive your word and to live in light of it. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the things I really like about having young kids at home is that it means that holiday times are a lot more exciting than if it's just uh, uh, you or just you and your spouse. Uh, and of course, the obvious one is Christmas because there's all these presents and, and a whole month-long build-up and all sorts of excitement, all sorts of uh, decorations and things like that. But, but what's really surprising to me is that even things that I consider really minor holidays they get really excited about. There's all this, anticip- all this anticipation of, of what this will be like and all this excitement. Uh, so take, for example, Valentine's Day a couple weeks ago. Um, now, I have to admit that I'm, I'm kind of a, a killjoy when it comes to uh, Valentine's Day. Um, I love my wife very much. I love kind of keeping the romance alive and all that, but, but I'm kind of uh, stubborn, a little bit cynical. I'm, I'm like, you know, no one's going to tell me when to buy chocolates and flowers uh, for my wife. I will decide when to show my love uh, to her. And so uh, every year my poor wife has to hear me ranting about how it's like a Hallmark holiday and it's not really real and it's all commercialized and all this stuff and how St. Valentine was actually a pretty neat dude. He was martyred for his faith, killed for his faith and all this stuff. And so my poor wife, and then this year we, we celebrated Valentine's Day by having our, our life group over uh, in the evening uh, at our house. And it wasn't like a, a special kind of time with life group, it was just normal life group. That, that's how I celebrate uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, but I was really surprised because my, my kids were, were treating it like it was Christmas. For, for weeks ahead of time, they were talking about how Valentine's Day was coming. And they couldn't wait for Valentine's Day to be here. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? It's, it's not even a real holiday. Why, why are you excited about this kind of thing? But then the more they talked about it, the more I realized what was so exciting. that They got to have classroom parties during the school day. Uh, they got to hand out little cards to their friends, and that was exciting too. And and they, they had this idea that maybe a bunch of candy was going to exchange uh, hands in the midst of all that as well. And, and so I started to kind of catch on why this was exciting to them. There was all this stuff that they got to do, and, and candy was attached to it as well. And then, of course, my, my sweet kids, they, they put me to shame by writing these really sweet notes to my wife and I. And, and actually, I think they're kind of like winning me over toward Valentine's Day uh, after this past year. But this got me thinking about, about holidays uh, more generally. Why do we celebrate holidays? Why do we celebrate things like Christmas and, and Valentine's Day? Why do we celebrate on anniversaries and birthdays? What is this all about? Well, we do this because we need the, to remember, right? We, we put this on the calendar year after year so that we remember the important things. See, we're very forgetful people. We know that, that we'll need to have, a, have this built into the, the rhythm of our lives because we tend to simply forget. So I need to mark my anniversary every year. I need to see a bunch of stuff about love and hearts at Valentine's Day because I need to be reminded that, that I need to actually tell my wife that I love her. I mean, I know that I love her. I, I told her that uh, 10 years ago. She should still know that that stands still. Nothing changed in that time period. But I need to be reminded that, that I have to actually continue to uh, speak my love to her and continue to show my love to her. And, and anniversaries and holidays, things like Valentine's Day, they're an opportunity to do that. 
Holidays are about remembering and, and helping us have an opportunity to celebrate the really important things in life. Well, today we're going to read a part in the Bible in which God gives his people a new holiday. He's about to do something that's incredibly important for them. And before that thing even happens, he's going to build into their calendar a celebration, a very strong, tangible reminder of this amazing thing that he is about to do. So this winter, we're in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible from the Old Testament. And we're looking at, at God building up this people for himself and developing them and growing them. And, and as we do so, we're learning what it means to trust God in our lives as well, to trust him on the journey of life and what that means for us. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 12 today. If you want, you can grab a Bible from the Purak. Uh, this is found on page 102 of those Bibles, Exodus chapter 12. So we look at this uh, chapter, we're going to see first that God uh, establishes this new holiday for them. It's called Passover. And then we're going to see this, this huge event that, that that Passover is pointing to. God delivers his people. And then we're going to take a look at why that matters uh, for us today. So let's look at the text here. And we'll start with God giving his people a new holiday. Now, what is about to happen here in, in the life of God's people is a really big deal, and, and so he wants them to understand uh, what this is all about and how big of a deal it is. So let's begin chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So to start to help God's people understand how big of a deal this is, God is rearranging their entire calendar. So this is now going to be the first month of their year. So whatever used to be the first month, now this month, this month of the Passover, is going to be their new year. It's, it's a really big deal for them. And, and at the start of this new year comes a, a special holiday, a week-long uh, ceremony. And, and there's specific instructions for commemorating this. And notice that this is something for the entire community of God's people. No one gets to opt out of Passover like I try to opt out of Valentine's Day. Everyone participates, and they participate together. And at the center of this commemoration is a lamb. Each household is to have one, and the lamb has to be perfect. No blemish, no spot, anything else. A perfect lamb. And it has to be a perfect lamb because this lamb is going to be offered to God. It's going to serve as a sacrifice for the people. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over them. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So now we see the, the purpose of the holiday. This holiday that they are observing is the terrible night of judgment that God brings against Egypt. And notice specifically that this is judgment against Egypt's gods, he says in verse 12. And that judgment on the gods is through punishment of those who are trusting in these gods. But for God's people, the blood of the lamb is to be put on the doorposts as an act of trust. As they obey him, that they're, they're showing that obedience, they're showing their trust in him through that obedience. And, and not only is it an act of trust, but it's also bringing in this idea of substitution. So the, the lamb dies instead of them. And so God's judgment, as he sees the blood, passes over them. He recognizes that they have faith in him. He recognizes that there has been a substitute for them. Verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work on all these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So this holiday is, is established as a permanent reminder. So it's the start of this great rescue of God, but then it's to be a permanent reminder for the generations to come as well. It's this week-long commemoration, special rules to, to govern, the, 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 govern this whole thing as a reminder of the, the sacredness of God's deliverance of his people. And, and the whole thing is, is really laden with symbolism. There's so much symbolism wrapped up in the observance of this holiday. Each part is designed to help them remember and relive this experience that they're about to have. So probably at any other time, it would have been rude to sit at a table with your coat on and your sandals on with your staff in your hand. But this time, it's about remembering God's deliverance. They've got their coat on. You're, you're ready to leave at a moment's notice. And at other times, you'd probably want to bake your bread with yeast to have it rise. But, but here, it's a reminder of the haste of God's deliverance. There's no time to let the bread rise. And in addition to that, it's, an import, it's a symbol of the importance of being set apart by God. So all of these things are pointing back to reliving and remembering and retelling this experience that this holiday is all about. And at our best, we do this in our celebration of holidays as well. So at Christmas time, our family gets out this big Advent calendar that we have, and we, we put it up on the wall. And every day through December, we pick up a, a little thing out of a little pocket in there, and we put it on, on the board. And we build the whole nativity scene each Christmas. And that means that every night we have an opportunity to talk about the different symbols and talk about the significance of that whole story. At best, we build these into our holiday celebrations. Now, of course, there are other things that we do that are simply traditions that we carry on that don't really tie to the significance of that. So we put up a Christmas tree. I don't, I don't know of any connection of a Christmas tree to the birth of Jesus, but we do it because we like it, and we've got ornaments, and we've got to put them somewhere. But, but that's not what, what uh, is supposed to happen here. Each part of the Passover celebration is pointing back to this great deliverance of God, helping God's people to remember this is what God did for us, and to relive that experience of, of waiting for God's deliverance, coat on, shoes on, ready to go, no time to let the bed, bread bake, and just waiting to hear that God is delivering his people. 
They relive that experience, and it's an opportunity to tell the story again. Now, the interesting thing is, as God is, is laying out all these regulations and, and telling them, this is a new holiday that you're to celebrate, he hasn't actually done the rescue yet. So what he's doing here is he's, he's building anticipation for his people to wait and to see this amazing thing that he's going to do. And now we see what that is. God sets his people free. Let's move ahead to verse 29 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who sat in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. Now this is a really sobering moment. But it's also a moment that that shows God's judgment on Egypt and his judgment on its gods. See, this this terrifying event is the culmination of this long conflict between Pharaoh and his gods and the true God, the God of Israel. And as sobering as it is, it, it reminds us of what it took to finally get Pharaoh to bow his knee to God and to relent and give him obedience See, from the very beginning of the book of Exodus, we've seen that that Pharaoh is opposed to God, and he is opposed to the work of God, and he's opposed to the people of God. See, God's people have been granted a place in Egypt out of uh, favor for one of their ancestors, Joseph, who helped save the country from catastrophe during a huge famine. But the memory of Joseph faded, and, and as a new king took place and a new regime took over, suddenly this new king just sees this people group living in his country. And his fear of the other then moves him toward brutal persecution of this people group. And so he turns them into slaves. He, he forces them into hard labor. And after at first attempting kind of a, a quiet infanticide, a secret infanticide, he turns it to outright a national policy. Every baby boy born to this people group thrown into the Nile to be killed. That's the kind of person that Pharaoh is. And when Moses confronts Pharaoh and gives him an opportunity to simply let God's people go, Pharaoh refuses. And God does this whole series of miraculous signs showing his power, showing that Pharaoh cannot stand up to him and that Egypt's gods cannot stand up to this God. Nine separate miraculous signs. And each time, Pharaoh refuses full obedience to God. He had plenty of opportunity to relent, plenty of opportunity to do what God has called him to do. And this is what it has taken. This devastating 10th plague is what it has taken for him to finally bow to God's will. And so he says, go, go out of the land. And and all the people of Egypt, they join with him and they're in this urgent need to, to get this people group out of their country. Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians now have seen God's power on display in in a way that, that none of us have ever seen. Just 
incredible power, this whole series of signs, and just about every part of the created order has been affected and brought into this, demonstrating God's matchless power in convincing the Egyptians that the only thing to do is just have this people leave, that there's nothing we can do in the face of the power of this God. And so the Egyptians are handing over gold and silver and clothing. Just go before we all die. And then from the perspective of God's people, Imagine the, the relief of this 400 long years in Egypt, years and years of slavery and oppression, years of their baby boys being thrown into the Nile River and killed, and finally now they're walking out of Egypt, and they're not slinking out, they're walking out through the front door. Their God has showed up, shown up in an incredible way, an incredible show of his power and his love for his people. He rescued them. I think of the, the incredible pictures that you see of the end of World War II. It's been a long time since we've had a decisive end of a war with victory like that. But, but looking back at those pictures, you can see the, the pure joy and the relief on the faces of people as they realize finally, at long last, this huge war is over. So that announcement that Japan had surrendered, that global war was over, people just flooded the streets in celebration. In addition to these amazing pictures, Life magazine describes a scene. He said, it's as if joy had been rationed and saved up for the three years, eight months, and seven days since December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And that's the relief, that's the joy of the end of a war. Stateside, imagine the relief on the ground with the, the soldiers who were fighting or those who were in Europe where the battles were raging. Imagine the relief they felt when finally this whole thing is over peace. And so it is with the Exodus generation. They are finally leaving Egypt. God set them free. It's an amazing moment for God's people. So why does this matter for us today? We, we can see how it's good for God's people as it happened, but, but why is this still, why does this matter for us? The book of Exodus is about this, this young nation learning to trust God and God has just taught his people this lesson in an incredible way. He has shown that, that his power is beyond their imagination. He has shown that he is faithful to his promises. He has shown that he cares for his people. The bottom line is that they have now seen that they can trust him, no matter how things look. And having learned that lesson, they need to pass that on to the next generations. Go back to verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. See, one of the most important aspects of the Passover one of the most important things that has been built into the life of the church is an opportunity to tell the next generations. I mean, these people got to see it with their own eyes. They got to experience this for themselves. And now they need to pass that on to the next generations. It's not just an experience for them. It's to be retold. See, it's one thing for, for my wife and I to celebrate our anniversary together. But that's the celebration that is for us. It's about uh, our marriage. It's about our wedding. But, but our kids, they're not going to celebrate our anniversary after we die. Our grandkids aren't going to celebrate our anniversary after we die. That's something that is for us. But the Exodus is different. 
This is an experience that they had that needs to be shared with the next generation, with their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. This is to be a festival, a holiday that's to be celebrated and commemorated for all generations to come for God's people. And of course, that demands that we ask the question, why don't we have a week-long festival where we have to get rid of all the yeast in our homes and follow the instructions that Moses and the people of Israel do? Well, the answer to that question lies in the new significance given to Passover by Jesus himself. See, Passover commemorates that the most foundational moment for the people of Israel. And the Old Testament is filled with references pointing back to this moment. So, for example, the Ten Commandments, one of the most famous passages in the whole Old Testament, it starts like this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Before he even gives any of the Ten Commandments, he's pointing back to this great rescue. And we see it again and again throughout the Old Testament. This is central for God's people. But as important as it was, it was pointing ahead to an even greater rescue. So we see this in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in these biographies of the life of Jesus. So Matthew, for example, records Jesus having a Passover celebration with his disciples. And as they're taking this meal, Jesus is preparing them for what is about to happen. So this is in Matthew chapter 26. They're taking the Passover meal, and then Jesus does this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is what's known as the, the Last Supper, and it was a Passover celebration. It happened the very night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, right before he was killed on a cross. So right before this, this huge event that, that wins our redemption, right before his arrest and death, Jesus gives his disciples this meal with a new significance. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. So he's taking the, the Passover meal and he's giving it new meaning. See, for the Passover meal, each family needed a perfect lamb that would be sacrificed for them to offer to God. And Jesus is indicating here that he is that perfect Passover lamb. His body and his blood are the sacrifice that provides the substitute for you and me and everyone who believes in him. For those who trust in Jesus, God looks at the blood of Jesus and judgment passes over us. Our sins are forgiven. So the church commemorates this as the Lord's Supper, recognizing that Jesus is that perfect Passover lamb who provides us with a new, better, final sacrifice. See, Exodus and the Passover celebration, they were pointing forward to this moment, the ultimate redemption of God, the ultimate deliverance of God's people. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. An early church leader named Paul, as he wrote to a church in Corinth, indicated as much. He said, as you take this meal, what you are doing is proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes. Now, sometimes as we look at what we do here, these celebrations can look a little bit strange if you didn't grow up with them. Why the, why the tiny cup? What's the little cracker about? It's kind of flavorless. There's nothing magical about the size of the servings or anything like that. Sometimes we'll use a loaf of bread. I've been in churches where you actually have a common cup with a wine in it and, and everyone drinks from that same cup. Most of us are a little bit too kind of germ conscious to do that kind of thing. 
But, but we don't have strict regulations for Lord's Supper, as strict as they did for Passover. This is simply to be a proclamation of the death of Jesus and a reminder that we need him. We take in the body of Christ. We take in the blood of Christ to recognize our trust in the death of Jesus, our trust in the cross. So this is a part of our worship that's designed to help us remember that God has set us free. And this is to be something that we do again and again and again in the life of the church. And of course, the question is, well, why is it so important that we keep doing this? Doesn't it get too routine? Doesn't it kind of lose its significance if we do this again and again? And we have to admit that we live in a culture that loves new things. My phone is like four years old. That is ancient in terms of technology. We love new things and rituals to us, repetition. It can, it can very quickly seem empty and stale and lifeless. But really, rituals and routines have a powerful long-term impact on our hearts and on our lives. So think about how quickly you can go back to something that was repeated decades ago in your life. Maybe it's a smell or a taste or a song or something like that, and, and instantly you can go back decades to something that you grew up with. So for, for example, my, my wife grew up with her dad making French toast every Sunday morning when she was a kid. It was part of their Sunday routine. He would make French toast, the kids would come down, and so now when my wife smells French toast, she immediately thinks of her childhood. She can't smell or taste French toast without going back to, in her mind, to her childhood kitchen and, and watching her dad make French toast and hear him sing and hum as he did so. See, that's part of the power of repetition. That's part of the power of this meal that Jesus gave us to celebrate. It, it draws us back through, through taste and, and touch and, and routine to remember what this is all about. Jesus died for us. This is, this is speaking the cross into the routine of our lives that, that God rescued us in his son. And if it starts to feel a little bit too repetitive, we remember that in repetition, there's actually a lot of power. Repetition ingrains truths into our minds and into our hearts for when that we really need them. See, in Israel's history, there are going to be many times where they're going to have to remember that God showed up big for them. And we'll see that as we look deeper into the book of Exodus. And the same is true for us. Repeating this reminds us. It puts it firmly in our memory. Jesus died for us. It works this way with Bible memorization. That's why it's Bible memorization is such a powerful kind of thing. So I remember as a kid, I learned Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and hold you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I didn't even intentionally memorize that. It was on some tape of songs that, that was played in my house. And I just, the re repetition of that made that come to mind. And most of the time, it's just kind of a verse that's floating around there sometimes. But, but every now and then, it's exactly what I need. Every now and then, there are times when I am afraid. There are times when I'm really discouraged. And this is one of the things that pops into my mind immediately. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be discouraged. I will uphold you. See, these truths are important. The repetition is important because it puts it there when we need it most. Let me give you a less spiritual uh, but maybe more dramatic example. Gold medal hockey game last week. U.S. women versus Canada. Some of you might have seen this. Uh, the Canadian women's team won the last four Olympic gold medals. So they are a dynasty. They are a force to be reckoned with. Well, the U.S., made it to the gold medal game against Canada. They're, they're a huge rival. They tie it through regulation. They make it through overtime. This means it's a shootout. 
high-pressure situation, tied two to two, the last shot for the U.S., and then this happens. Jocelyn Lamoureux, two goals apiece in the shootout. Lamoureux moving in on Zabinas. She beats and scores! Oh, my gosh. That's electrifying. That's as good as you're going to see anywhere. Great move, great hands, great deception. It's a nice move, right? i got to show you hockey at some point. But you know what struck out to me? She said in an interview afterwards, I have practiced that move thousands of times. Now you watch it, and you think that is creative, it's spontaneous, it's, it's just something she just pulled out of the hat right there. It's not. It's something that she practiced thousands of times. And you imagine, and you think, well, man, isn't that too repetitive? Don't you get bored doing the same thing over and over and over again? Well, here's the thing. It was there when she needed it. So that's the power of repetition here. Repetition serves to reinforce the message for us. It, it speaks truth deep into our hearts because there are times when we desperately need that truth. This series in Exodus is about us learning to trust God on the journey. And, and Israel is given a powerful example of that. We see God teaching his people that he is trustworthy. They can count on him no matter what is happening in their life as a nation, in their life as individuals. And this Passover celebration, this holiday, it puts that firmly into their memory. And the same is true for us with the Lord's Supper. And we have to admit that, that there are times when this seems very routine to us. And frankly, maybe today this is not going to mean a lot to you. But the, here's what is happening as we repeat this over and over again, it's putting God's rescue through the cross firmly into our hearts and, and firmly into our memories. We're speaking to ourselves the most important truth we can know, that Jesus died to rescue us. See, we're going to face times in our lives when we desperately need that message, when there is yet another school shooting, when you get that phone call with the results from your test, when you are struggling to pay the bills and suddenly you lose your job. See, it's in those times that we're tempted to believe that, that God can't actually care for us in the real world. By taking the, the Lord's Supper, it serves as an act of protest in these moments. When we're tempted to despair, when we're tempted to believe that there's no hope in this world, the Lord's Supper speaks to a more powerful reality. It reminds us that, that no matter how bad things are in our lives, no matter how lost we feel, no, how, no matter how disappointed we may be, there is unshakable hope for us. We can count on God no matter what. See, when our present situation is too much for us to handle, we have to go back to what we know is true. Go back to what God has done in the past to show us his power, to show us his love. Look back at the Exodus. He rescued his people. Look back at the cross of Jesus. He rescued you and I. He put his power and his love on display powerfully. And looking back to the past then gives us the, the assurance that we can live in the present, confident of the good future that God will bring for us. See, we have incredibly good news this morning. And it's rooted in the work of God for us in Jesus. No matter how hard life is, the cross shows us that there is an answer. As many of you know, the Reverend Billy Graham died this past week. 99 years old and decades of, of ministry. And he, he spoke to millions of people all around the world. 
But you know what? He was known for the simplicity of his message and the clarity of his message. And at the center of the whole thing for him was the cross of Jesus. Here's what he says. Just one quote of many. He says, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. See, the God of the universe, the God who is so powerful that he can speak the entire cosmos into existence by a mere word, the God who could turn Egypt upside down and draw his people out, the God who could raise Jesus from death to life, loves you and me. He loves us so much that he sent his own son to rescue us when we were completely undeserving. That's why the cross is such an important symbol for us. It's a reminder that we celebrate in this meal that God loves us. He is for us. As we take the meal this morning, I want you to reflect on what that means. And maybe there are specific things that you are going through right now that are making you question God's love for you. Or maybe they're making you question God's power, his ability to make things right. You're questioning whether you can actually count on him. We're going to pass out the elements in a moment here. And, and as, as we do that, and as you hold the bread, and as you hold the cup, I want you to think about all the ways that you are tempted to not believe in the love and the power of God. And then I want your attention to turn to the cross of Jesus and allow this meal to minister the truth of the gospel to your hearts. God loves us so much that he sent his own son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's love is powerful for us. Let's remember that as we take this meal together. God, I thank you for sending Jesus. The truth is that we'd be hopeless without him, totally and completely hopeless. What, what could we possibly do? I thank you for showing in such a remarkable and powerful way your love and your grace for us. I pray that as we take this meal you would remind us of that grace and love. Some of us right now are going through hard things that are making it difficult for us to believe that could even be possible. Maybe God doesn't even know what we're going through. I pray that in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubt, you would speak to us the healing and the hope of the gospel shown so powerfully in the cross of Jesus. Minister to us the death and the resurrection of Jesus as we take this meal together. We pray this in the name of Jesus.